I don't know about you, but uh, I think, well, I guess I can say I, I know about you because I think we've all had the shared experience that this last year has been difficult, to say the least. This last year has been disappointing, to say the least. It's been a year that uh, many have suffered disappointments. Many have suffered under the weight of sin and under the weight of disappointment. It's a year where it seems like ministries have uh, faltered, jobs have faltered, our economy has stopped, and it's, it's a year where I am seeing now the effects of what all has taken place as more and more people are beginning to suffer underneath the, the weight that has seemed to come by the world standing still. And I can even say and, and confess and share and, and ask your prayers, I know that I am getting tired. I've shared with some that it's, it's been a discouraging time as I feel like we have just been treading water and going nowhere. And so I'm excited that you are here and I am excited that uh, it seems like there is hope on the horizon. But as we suffer under the reality that life doesn't always go our way, that we suffer under the reality of death and disappointments, we can sometimes be tempted to think that this last year was just a waste because we see our life as this, this timeline of these this finite existence and we have seemingly, seemingly lost a year of ministry or lost a year of growth or lost a year of life. And when we're trapped up against that wall that is that, that final date that's going to be stamped on our tombstone, it can feel like we are trapped and we are losing. And sometimes when we get to that place where we feel pinned against a wall where there's nowhere to go, we suffer under that weight and that disappointment. We can begin to lash out as we have family and we have friends that are suffering. Or we have family or friends who don't know Jesus Christ, who are want, wandering off into sin. And we can begin to clamor and claw and, and cling and attempt to do what only God can do. We need a, a reality check. We need a, a change of our perspective. And this morning in Luke chapter 24, we meet two disappointed disciples and we learn in their encounter with Jesus Christ that they needed a, a perspective shift. They needed the truth revealed that the reality of the resurrection transforms everything. The resurrection changes everything. Look with you, me, if you will, in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. We pick up in the middle of the day of Jesus' resurrection. After he has appeared to the women at the tomb... And there in the middle of the day, Luke writes, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, 
O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while, we talked, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, I thank you for your love and your grace. And I thank you for the reality of the resurrection. That in the resurrection we have hope. In the resurrection we have life. In the resurrection is, is tied up all of our existence in Jesus Christ. Because in the resurrection, Father God, you change everything. You give us a new identity and a new life in Jesus Christ. So I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would grip my heart and that you would take my lips, that you would lead me in the way that you would have me to go, in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake, not for mine and not for this church's and not for anything other than the name of Jesus Christ alone. Take these words. Move our hearts to worship you as you deserve. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Again, in this passage of Scripture, the first thing that we meet is two disciples who are sorely disappointed. They're leaving Jerusalem, and verse 17 tells us that they're sad. And understandably so, after all, they had walked, they had talked, they had lived with Jesus Christ for a period of time. The Bible says here that they are defeated because in verses 19 and 20, they, they say that he was a mighty man. And they expected this mighty man to do incredible things, but instead they saw this mighty man fall at the hands of both the religious leaders of Jerusalem of the day and also the Roman rulers that they had expected him to defeat. And so they're sad and they're defeated, but we also find in verse 21 that they're hopeless. After all, they say, we had hoped that he would be the one to save us. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. They're sad, they're defeated, they're disappointed in everything that they have seen take place over the few days before this. As this Jesus Christ who had only a, potentially a week before had entered into Jerusalem to the shouts and the praises of the people had been crucified on Friday, buried in the tomb on Friday afternoon. And now the tomb is empty. And as they're traveling, they're discussing all of the stuff that had happened, including the testimony of these women who had discovered the empty tomb and the disciples who had confirmed their story. But still we see that these two must not be convinced in what they've heard because they're headed out of town. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why. Was it fear? Was it simply disappointment? Had they given up? But it's clear that these two have packed it up and are headed home. Disappointed, discouraged, struggling both in their understanding and weak in their faith. And they're desperate, in desperate need for someone to meet them where they are, to lead them where they need to be. What they need is a shepherd to teach them, to guide them, to direct them in a better way. 
And that shepherd arrives as Jesus approaches them and asks about their conversation. And in this, Jesus, as he is hidden from them, he asks them what they're talking about. And in this mysterious miracle, Jesus is hidden from them as the scripture shares that for some reason they were kept from recognizing him. And I had to ask myself the question, why would God do this? Why would God hide the eyes of the disciples so that they don't recognize Jesus in this incredible moment? Is God just having a laugh? Is Jesus just getting a practical joke? Is it somewhere near April Fool's Day and he's just wanting to to play a trick on them? As I wrestled with that, I realized that throughout the the New Testament and throughout the Gospels, I see when Jesus Christ interacts with the disciples, he always reveals himself to them in some personal way. As Mary is there at the tomb, and she is despondent, and she's crying, and she's weeping, and she has this interaction with this man that she thinks is the gardener, it isn't until she hears Jesus speak her name that she realizes who it is. And even after the disciples had met Jesus in Jerusalem while they're there on the Sea of Galilee, he's standing on the shore, and they don't immediately recognize who it is until he encourages them to throw their their nets out on the other side, and they catch a tremendous amount of fish, bringing back to their mind this personal encounter that they had had with with the living Jesus Christ. And they realize he's still alive. And in this moment, we realize what Jesus is doing, I think, is that Jesus is the good shepherd who knows best how to pursue his sheep. He knows what they need. He knows that they aren't ready for the miraculous revelation of himself yet, but there is something that they need to learn. There is something that needs to be revealed to them, and that revelation needs to come in the reality of the resurrection. And in meeting this resurrected Jesus Christ, these two disciples learn that the reality of the resurrection changes everything. And first what we see is that the resurrection changes first our understanding of Scripture. Jesus is asking them what is going on, and they're sharing all of this information, that he was a a prophet of God, mighty indeed. They had seen his power. They believed that he was powerful. They believed that he was supposed to be the Messiah, which reveals that they had a certain understanding of the Old Testament promises of God. That God had been promising for thousands of years that he would send someone who would fix the problems in the world. But like everyone else in that day, they didn't have the full picture and a full understanding of the ministry of the Messiah. There were pieces of the puzzle that seemed to be contradictory and not fit together. For example, the very first promise of the coming of the Messiah is in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 where God declares that he is going to send someone who is going to defeat the serpent once and for all. But in that promise, we find out that this hero who comes to fatally wound the, 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 the serpent is fatally wound him, wounded himself. How do we reconcile a victor, a hero, who dies in the process of accomplishing victory? Psalm 110. It's a psalm that we quoted last week. There's this wrestling with how is it that the son of David is greater than his father? And more than that, how is it that there is a king who is at the same time a priest? That doesn't seem to make sense. And then in Isaiah and and throughout the rest of the prophets, we see these promises of this victorious king who is going to come and accomplish these great feats for the Lord and establish a throne that is going to be established forever and forever. And yet there is this servant who suffers 
at the hands of his people and for his people. How do these two identities, these two realities in the Old Testament, how do they connect with one another? And the nation of Israel has been struggling with this and how this all worked. And it all only comes together in the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's in his resurrection that we understand the truth that death is not defeat, but death is actually the way of salvation and life belongs to the perfect Son of God who is raised in glory that he might give us life now. Death is not the end. It is not the wall that crashes everything against it. Instead, death is the way by which we are saved. And all of Scripture reveals this story, the story of God's desire to redeem His people by sending His Son to take the punishment that we deserve for our sins, be raised to new life so that we might receive an everlasting life that we don't deserve. All of Scripture is revealing this story as it exposes the sinfulness of humanity, showing the best that humanity has to offer, whether it's Adam in the garden or David on his throne. All the best that humanity has to offer is corrupt and sinful, lacking anything close to the goodness that God desires or demands. We're all corrupt, chasing after gods of our own design, and that is why we need a Savior to keep us from the punishment that we deserve and lead us instead into grace, forward into glory. All of the pieces of the Old Testament snap together in Jesus Christ when we realize that the Bible is not an instruction manual for our lives, but is instead the story of God's redemption that flows to and from the resurrected Jesus Christ. All of Scripture sings the name of Jesus, pointing us to him. And sometimes we have the tendency when we go looking for Jesus in Scripture, we overinterpret this passage of Scripture and we start going on a, a Jesus hunt. Like, you know, one of those old Where's Waldo pictures? And you're hunting around and you're trying to find Waldo hidden in the midst of all of this chaos. And sometimes we can think that when we go reading through the Old Testament, when we go reading through Scripture, that Jesus is just somehow hidden behind this rock or in this tree. And it's true that throughout the Old Testament, there are certain types that, that point us towards Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus is clearly the better David who steps in to fight the Goliaths in our lives that you and I are too terrified to step up and fight against. And instead, we need a deliverer and a king who can save us. But for the most part, what Scripture is doing is exactly what I just said. It's revealing the story of our desperate need of a Savior because we are incapable of saving ourselves. And so Jesus is the interpretive key. His ministry is the interpretive key to understanding all of Scripture. And when we understand that, it should drive us into Scripture to find out more about our desperate need for God and more about God's desperate love and, and wonderful love for us in sending His Son and, into his, and sending His Savior. And so as Jesus unlocks the Bible to them, I would ask you, has he unlocked the Bible to you? Do you read Scripture? Do you love Scripture? Do you search in it for the things in your life that it reveals that need to be put aside and put off so that you can put on Jesus Christ? Are you motivated to search for Jesus Christ and his ministry to you and his love for you every single moment of every single day by reading the Scripture? What is your relationship to it? Because it is what points us to Christ. It is the unveiling and the teaching of Scripture that unlocks their hearts so that they burned inside of them for the truth to be revealed. 
The resurrection doesn't just change how we read Scripture. The resurrection also changes our perceptions of and expectations for our lives. This passage of Scripture is a testimony of transformation. These two disciples are not the same disciples at the end of the story that we meet at the beginning of the story. As we said at the beginning of the story, they are sad and understandably so. They had hoped, past tense, had hoped that Jesus would be the answer to all of their problems. But he died. And their hope died with him. Because these two disciples, just like you and just like me, see death as final. And all their hopes had gone up in smoke, leaving them disappointed and desperate. And this is the place where so many of us live. We have hopes and we have expectations about what it means to be a Christian, to be favored by God. We have expectations of what God is going to do for us. He will take away our hurts. He will silence our fears. He will deliver us from suffering, from heartbreak, from disappointment. Life in Jesus is supposed to be perfect. And it's a tremendous disappointment when it's not. When our best life isn't now. When the heaven-on-earth reality that we long for doesn't come true, we suffer doubt and fear that maybe we had it all wrong in the first place. But if heaven can come here, we don't need it there. And so we have to learn to doubt our doubts. And ask the same difficult question of our doubts and our fears that we ask of our faith. And we need to often be asked the question that these disciples are asked by Jesus. Maybe it's your hopes and your expectations that are wrong. Maybe God isn't wrong. Maybe you are. What a mind-blowing reality. And that was the purpose of Jesus' instructions. He opened their hearts to see God's story and see that God's plan was far bigger than they had ever actually hoped or imagined. As their understanding of God's story exposed in Scripture began to grow, a hunger inside of them began to burn for the reality and the truth to be revealed that there is something beyond this life. That that expiration date of, God, that, of God's plan and purpose for our lives doesn't end with that date that gets put on our tombstone. There is not a wall against which we are trapped. That wall actually doesn't exist at all because there's an eternity on the other side that goes on and on and on and on. And the God who sees eternity can work even when you're gone. The God's promises don't fail because they don't happen in between the two dates on our tombstone. But God's promises expand beyond that. So we can trust that heaven is real. It's not here and not now. Instead, it's still to come. And we can hold on to our hopes and our dreams, trusting that God will keep all of his promises, if not in this life, then in the one still to come. And it was in realizing the resurrection was true that all of their disappointment vanished. Notice that they don't even seem to care that he disappeared in front of them. Do you see that? About the time that their eyes are opened and he breaks the bread and they realize it's Jesus, poof, he's gone, and they don't seem to care. They're so elated. 
Because they realize in some way they have been transformed and their hearts have been reoriented to a perspective that there's more than the here and the now, but an eternity that is waiting for them. Their understanding of both time and Christ's presence have been transformed by the reality of the resurrection. And all their hopes are confirmed by being transformed by the reality that Jesus' death was not the end, but Jesus' death was merely a step along the path of God's redemption for them. And their hope is restored, and all of their perceptions and expectations for their lives are transformed. And out of that, the resurrection doesn't just transform their perceptions and their expectations. It transforms how they live, compelling them to seek and serve others by sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we genuinely believe that the resurrection is real, that everlasting life is real, we must also believe that everlasting condemnation in hell is also real, and that compels us out of love to tell other people the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if heaven is real, hell must be too. And if you can sit back and watch someone you claim to love go there without being burdened, I question your love at all. When Jesus opened their eyes to the truth of Scripture and opened their eyes to the reality of His presence and the truth of the resurrection, these two are compelled to go and tell the ones they love. All of their worries and all of their concerns go completely out the window, right? They get to the place where they were going to stay. Maybe it's their home, maybe it's a hotel, who knows what, but they're there. And Jesus says that He's going to continue on, right? And they give Him all of the reasons why He doesn't need to go. Now, on the one hand, they want him to stay so that he can continue to teach them. But the excuses that they give for him to stay, to hold on to him, is, hey, listen, it's late. You don't want to be out on the road at night. It's time to eat. Why don't you come on in and why don't you stay with us? And all of a sudden, now that Jesus has vanished in front of them and their eyes have been opened to the reality that he's alive, all of those cares and concerns about the fact that it's dark, the fact that it's probably unsafe for them to be out on the road, the fact that they just spent probably, who knows, a couple of hours making the, the trek from Jerusalem, which is about seven miles, completely goes out the window and they double time it back to Jerusalem because they've got to share the good news. Their friends are back there in the same place that they were in at the beginning of this encounter with Jesus Christ, despondent and defeated and disappointed, and they cannot leave them there. But instead, they come bearing the good news of hope that Jesus is alive, and that changes everything. And so these two that were pursued by God become agents in his pursuit of others. That's what this story is. This story is about God's passionate pursuit of every one of his children. Because after all, Jesus prayed in the garden he prayed that promise that said, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. And here are two wandering sheep that Jesus refuses to let get away. He comes after them. He pursues them. And you know, something that grips my heart in this passage is that it reveals the reality that God loves and cares about every single one of his sheep, even the ones outside of the inner circle, outside of the special, outside of the elite. 
This is the only time that Cleopas shows up in Scripture. We don't know who he was. We don't know who the other unnamed disciple was. All we know is that Jesus pursued them and brought them back. It's easy for us sometimes to get disappointed and discouraged when we play the comparison games and we begin looking at the lives of other believers. When we see the spiritual maturity of our pastors or Sunday school teachers or missionaries, when we see the the success of these churches and, and ministries that are growing rapidly, when we hear the radical stories of gospel transformation in someone's life who lived extreme conditions of disobedience and sin, we can get down on ourselves. And we can begin to think that our story is not that special to God. That our story doesn't matter. And we can begin be tempted to think that God sees us as some secondary citizen. But this story proves that every single disciple matters to Jesus. Every child of God matters to God. Jesus will not let these two wander off into night, but into the night, but instead runs after them, pursuing them in exactly the right manner. He teaches them, stirring within them a faith that, that desires the story to be true, that awakens a hope inside of their hearts, that crescendos in the breaking of the bread and the revelation as God opens their eyes at just the right moment, in just the right time, that they then believe in Jesus Christ in his resurrected glory. Then all of the teaching and all of the fulfillment compels them into servants as they run after others and share the good news of the resurrection. As I said, just as they had been pursued by Jesus, they now become agents in his pursuit of others. We are truly captured by Christ. We become those who go out to be the fishers of men that Jesus called his disciples to be. To take up the great commission to make, shape, and send faithful followers of Jesus Christ. How are you committed to serve God by serving others that you might see them saved by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where does that show up in your life? So I would close by asking you this simple question. Has the reality of the resurrection changed everything for you? Has it changed your relationship with Scripture that you desire to read and see and know and experience God's love for you that leaps off of the pages so that you can read this letter, not as a basic instructions before leaving earth, but as God's divinely inspired and scripted love letter to you to pursue you and deepen to your life and draw you into an everlasting relationship with Him? Not as necessarily as, as, as despot and servant, but instead as father and son father and daughter who loves you and longs to see what is best for you in your life? Are you committed to seeking him in scripture? If not, then I would challenge you. I would ask you, would you please commit yourself to seek him in his word by inviting another believer alongside of you that you might join in regular Bible reading and prayer and accountability because you won't do it alone. If you're not doing it alone right now, you won't start today. Find a partner. Find a friend. We're not supposed to live this life alone. And being, re, being 
confronted with the reality of the resurrection, do you experience an excitement as these two disciples experience, a burning in your heart that thrives and that compels you into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ? Or are you bored with Christianity? Are you disconnected from God? Have you grown lukewarm and lost your faith and an excitement of Jesus? And then I would ask you, start praying that God would fulfill his word, that he would restore to you the joy of your salvation. And ask another brother or sister in Christ to pray that with you. That you might be constantly reminded of the power of the resurrection and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. Would you ask someone to begin praying with you? Would you begin praying that God would overwhelm you with his love for you? If you're convinced of the power of the resurrection, where is that outlet of that reality in your life? Because the truth of the matter is, the more we pursue God in his word, the more that we find God in his word, the more that we are stirred in our faith and our excitement in the gospel of Jesus Christ and what that means for us, it will fill up inside of our hearts. And guess what? There has to be a place for it to go. And the place that God designed for that to go is in service. Do you show up week after week, year after year, just to to get fed and get fed and get fed? You know what happens if all you've got is you've got a a body of water that has all inflow and it goes nowhere? There's no outflow of the stream. All it does is all of the, the water pours in and it just pools there. You know what we call that? We call that the Dead Sea. The lowest place on earth where all of the garbage from everything else just flows. And because there is no place for it to go, it just creates this environment that is ultimately hostile to life. You want to live a full life in Jesus Christ. It means receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ and giving the gospel of Jesus Christ in service to other believers, to others around you in the world. A life that only has outflow is a life that goes dry. We need both. We need to serve. Is your Christianity driven by your desire to grow yourself or a desire to grow the people of God and the kingdom of God? And I would challenge you to find a place of service, even if that means just holding babies, so that others in our communities have a place to come where they might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That means handing out waters here at the church. If that means being present in prayer, being faithful in service, that's the way to give ourselves that place where all of that love for God in Scripture and love from God through Scripture and the gospel of Jesus Christ goes out of us and into the lives to build up others. But if you're here this morning and the reality of the resurrection has never changed anything for you, then I would ask you to simply get on your face and ask God to reveal what it is that's standing in your way. Is it your doubt? Is it failed expectations? Is it fears? Is it preconceptions about what Christianity is supposed to be? What is it that is keeping you from the reality of the resurrection and experiencing its power in your heart and your life to save you from your sins and promise you and give you that hope of an everlasting life in him? 
How do you need to come to the Lord this morning with all of your heart submitting to his love and instruction that he might lead you to that moment of revelation and salvation? Maybe you're ready. Maybe your heart is burning inside of you right here and right now that says, I'm not serving, I'm not reading scripture, I'm not connected with other believers, I'm not in love with Jesus Christ and with the church, I need that. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I've never believed in Jesus Christ and my heart is burning inside of me that says, God loves you, God loves you. And he's pursuing you. And I would invite you to stop kicking, stop fighting, stop resisting, but instead turn around and let him love you by receiving him as your Lord and Savior today, by simply crying out and calling out just as we prayed earlier, adoring God, thank you for pursuing me. I'm a sinner and there's nothing I can do about it. I need you to save me and change me from the inside out and God will redeem you, rescue you, save you today. Would you pray that prayer? I'm going to invite you, if you would, to bow your heads and close your eyes and pray, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal you to you the way that you need to grow, whether that is in repentance and faith for the very first time, or whether that is in confession and repentance of the ways that you have resisted his love and the life he calls us to live in Christ, and ask him to show you the way that you need to repent and believe today. Would you take a moment in prayer, and I'll come back and close this in a moment.